Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Hello and welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. Today's episode features a live panel conversation between five storytellers of the travel world. Five voices come together from across three continents to discuss how travel may not only be life-affirming, but authentic and even epic, as it also seeks to leave a positive impact on our world. The conversation is hosted by London-based journalist and sustainability expert, Juliet Kinsman, Africa Bush Camp's CEO, Bexen Glovo, as well as Joss Kent, Executive Chairman and CEO of And Beyond, bring the perspective of the travel industry. A passionate advocate of transformative travel, Former Warner Media CEO Jason Killer talks about his belief in how personal choice should be driven by the potential for positive impact. Bjorn Stauch, Vice President of CI Ventures, discusses how sustainable economic opportunities lie at the heart of conservation. Questions posed by viewers will be addressed at the end. Welcome. Thank you so, so much for joining us today from all over the world. It's such a powerful, powerful moment when we can be connected. Please, in the comments box, tell us where you are so we can have a sense of this incredible global community. We're here to talk about what makes travel epic. Welcome to our conversation. I'm really excited. Um, I, I'm an author and a broadcaster. I'm also the first ever sustainability editor for Condé Nast Traveler magazine. It's a great honor to be hosting this conversation with fellow storytellers. It may not be their professional job titles like me, but believe me, their stories are some of the most powerful in reminding us how we can really make our travels count. I was thinking I should also maybe talk about the word epic, or one definition of, of the word epic is something that is heroic, grand in scale and character, and that's definitely what we're going to hear about, some heroic adventures. Thank you. First of all, there's going to be Joss Kent, of course, and Beyond's CEO, someone with a profound connection to Africa and much, much, much of the world and, and its people. Someone who's really brought to life, for me, the power of transformational travel on an individual level and also is, is modeling through his business the incredible reach of an impact-focused company. Um, he's going to take us to the Congo vicariously in a moment from London. Then we've got Bex Unlovu, who is CEO of African Bush Camps. We've spoken so many times and I've never yet had the pleasure of meeting him in real life, but this is this is almost as good. And just like Joss, he started as a professional, a professional guide. He'll take us today to Zimbabwe, where he was born. But uh, I, I asked, I asked Bex where where you know he spends most, most of his time. Where does he consider home? And he said to me, Well, he's joining us from Cape Town, he said, home is where your dog is. And we've got Jason Kyler, who is traveler and former CEO of Warner Music. Jason has always been, um, he's been operating in the intersection of technology and media. He's the founding CEO of, of Hulu. And um, actually he was, a, he was an early member of this little, this company, it's a sort of online, I don't know if you know it, this online platform called Amazon. So he's one of the first people to work there. We'll follow in his family's footsteps to Kenya. And also we're gonna meet Bjorn Stauch. I'm so sorry, I'm like, I'm, I'm so excited. I feel like I'm, I'm getting everyone's names as, as good as I can do. <laughs> Leading the uh, solution-driven funding arm of Conservation International, Bjorn has transitioned from high finance to conservation finance, and he's now modeling how to put money to incredibly good use. We'll join him through his memories of a really, really poignant, life-changing trip to Madagascar. Thank you. So first question, I think, well, all of us want to know, what is the, 
What is the most epic goosebump inducing travel memory that you've ever had to our panel? Joss, tell us about your trip to the Congo. Hi, everybody. Well, I'll, I'll take you back to 1994, Eastern Congo, can you believe it, in those days, uh, Lake Kivu. I was working as a professional guide, a bit like Bex, <clears throat> sort of learning the trade. And I was lucky enough to take Bill and Melinda Gates on an epic safari. Um, the inspiration was the origins of man, um, and it was across the whole of East Africa, including the Congo. And we ended up landing on Lake Kivu in this World War II Catalina seaplane, which you can see top left in the image. And we went right up into the Cahuzzi Biega National Park to go gorilla, gorilla trekking. And the reason this was a seminal moment for me was the photograph I took on the right was Bill Gates sitting on a, on a log, staring into the eyes of a silverback. And for him afterwards, the conversation we had was, he was thinking back to the origins of man and the connectivity of us as human beings, hominids, back through the, the eyes of the, the silverback to the origins of man. But at the same time, he was also contemplating what might happen to the world in terms of the super information highway, as he called the internet in 1994, and the huge impact it would have on all of our lives and indeed the species amongst which we live. And I remember that conversation to this day and how prescient was that if you think of what's happened since 1994? That's incredible, honestly. There's no greater aha moment than, than them deciding that they're going to really change how how they use their money globally. It's profound. Thank you so, so much. And thank you to everyone who's joining us. We've got people all literally all over the world. We've got Nepal, we've got Michigan, we've got Rwanda. Thank you all. We're going to join Bex, who is now going to take us through a memory to Zimbabwe. Thank you, Juliet. <clears throat> I think for me, um, I tell the story quite proudly because it almost set off my career in the conservation space. Um, you know, us guides often uh, really get off on, on being able to tell our stories in the way in which we grew up. But I think for me, the biggest impact that this industry has had for me is the people that I've met all over the world. Um, but, but it's been a partnership almost with colleagues being able to banter and tell the story and in recent times, employ um, uh, and, and actually invite whole communities to be able to tell their story. And one vivid um, experience for me was, was, you know, in the late 90s after all the rhino poaching was quite rampant in Southern Africa, actually. And back in Zimbabwe, the government did a very smart thing, albeit might have been a bit too late, but at least we were able to save some of the rhino that remained in some of our national parks and sent them up into uh, these highly protected areas called, called intensive protective zones. I so happened to be working in Matusadona National Park, which is uh, alongside Lake Kariba. And I clearly remember one morning um, getting a, a message from the National Parks Rangers, very exciting. One of the first few calves um, had been born from one of the female rhinos. So I set off with a couple, and um, just to put a dateline, this was 99, 2000. And uh, we set off uh, on this, uh, very barely used track and came across um, this mother and next to it was this tiny little rhino footprints. And you can imagine the excitement of this new baby in the national park. Anyway, we navigated through elephants, through herds of buffalo. Um, and, and if you know anything about tracking rhino, you're constantly weaving your way through this habitat that's thickly woven. And in fact, one of the best things that you can go by is sound when they stop and chew on the branches because they are a browser. 
at any event, one of my briefings whilst tracking Black Rhino is just like a pilot flies and looks for safe places to land in case anything happens with Black Rhino is look for the tallest tree in case we have to get up there. Anyway, needless to say, the tallest tree around the area uh, was barely taller than I was. And uh, most of those trees were thorn trees. So this would get potentially quite interesting. Um, there's a lot of things that happened in between, but at some point, a couple of us did end up at the top of these thorny trees. And, and that was the first of, of, of the real evidence of, of a success story, but also the beginning of a tragic story. Um, needless to say that Carv was taken down by Leopard two weeks later. Um, but the biggest threat that really came to reality for me is that today I go back to that national park and sadly, that park lost most of its rhinos. So we were unable to win that war. And so, you know, guiding for me has taken me throughout Africa to experience different parts of Africa. And this is a threat that inspired me to say, what is it that I can do, whether singularly or with others, to be able to contribute to a meaningful difference so that we can get back to those experiences, not just so that we can feel good about it, but for humanity. And consequently, um, in 2021, uh, that same couple, uh, matched and bit very high on the safari that I guided uh, last year, raising money for our foundation. So again, it's these partnerships with people that come to Africa that we formed that span over 20 years and were able to make a difference together as a true partnership. Thank you, Vex. Well, I hope people are feeling inspired. I have to say I have once sort of tracked a rhino on foot. It is <laughs> one of the most exhilarating moments of my life, particularly when it stopped and sort of shuffled around facing in our direction. Um, thanks for bringing that to life. Honestly, I've got hairs on end thinking thinking about how important these trips are and the work that you do, really. Um, and it's, it, what's really special about today's conversation, I think a lot of us watched a lot of webinars during the pandemic. Pandemic, And what's really special today is we have a traveler with us, you know, Jason, who, who really is someone who went and experienced this. This is someone who isn't in, involved in the travel industry, but just, can tell us from the heart how powerful travel can be. Jason, tell us about your time in Kenya with Joss. Sure thing. And these stories are, are very um, reflective, reflective of the fact that I, I, what I found is when you set foot in a new country um, that's distant and new for you, the aperture opens up. And, uh, and that was certainly our goal, Juliet, uh, when we went to Kenya uh, for the first time back in 2016. And uh, I'm a father of four kids and my wife and I thought, it would be great to expose our kids to a different part of the world. So we set off for Kenya uh, with NBeyond's help, um, and we arrived in Kichwatembo, uh, a little uh, camp in, in, in the Masai Mara uh, reservation. And one of the things that we wanted to do as parents was to, yes, safari in the morning, uh, but in the afternoon, we wanted to go and really get a sense of the local community and do whatever we could um, to expose our kids to it, and ideally, um, um, hopefully have an impact on us and our children. So we went to the local school. My wife and I proceeded to go inside to get a tour of the school. Uh, very, very humble surroundings, but a tremendous amount of love uh, that you could feel in that school building. And while we were in the school building, all the kids, uh, this primary uh, uh, school, were outside on the pitch. Uh, and the pitch is a, maybe a generous term in this case, because it was largely just um, solid dirt that had been packed down from lots and lots of hours of, of play. And, uh, and our kids stayed behind to play uh, football with the kids there. And, uh, 
and my wife and I came out uh, to kind of observe and to, to, to kind of check in on the kids after about an hour. And uh, we saw something that was, I think, very profound, certainly for my wife and I, and I know it was profound for my kids, which is my daughter, Sadie, um, uh, noticed that um, a number of the girls and a number of the boys um, either didn't have shoes or their shoes were absolutely not in working order. And so she um, gave her shoes um, to this girl um, and, uh, and then went home and promptly started a, food dri uh, a shoe drive for this school. And um, it was a simple act, but I think it was an example of the power of global travel, um, which is it, um, it forces you to drop your ethnocentricities, which we have a problem with here in America. Um, and, um, and it opens your aperture, as I said, to um, you know, the fact that we're really citizens of the world. And, um, and it was a simple moment. And as parents, you dream about these moments. Um, and I don't think it would have been possible if we would have, uh, unless we had traveled across the world to little old Kichwa Tembo, um, it, it was um, profound in ways that um, you know, are impossible to say fully. Thank you, Jason. Honestly, I find that really, really powerful and poignant and something that you made me think of. Um, I'm someone who, who has been a travel writer. I've been a journalist almost 28 years. And something I think is really important to remember, which you've highlighted, is, you know, we often promote other destinations for travel as another world. But it isn't another world. It's actually one world, as you say. We're citizens of the same world. We're all we're all you know, human, part of humanity and, and we're all interconnected. I, I think it's really important to remember that. So thank you so, so much. Um, I, I'm, I'm really excited for, for everyone here, the audience also to hear from Bjorn because this isn't just a typical feel good, I had an amazing aha moment on holiday story. It's, it's, it goes deeper than that. And that is the power of travel. Thank you, Bjorn. You're, you're going to take us back to a very important trip to Madagascar. It's worth the build up. Um, thanks, Juliet, and, and thanks, Jason, for that story. It was it was really it was really um, heartfelt and, and and resonated with me. So, um, my name is Bjorn Stauch. I, as Juliet said, I lead um, Conservation International's Impact Investing um, Program and, and, and funds. Um, but before that, I was a banker for twenty years. Um, uh, all over the world, a long time in Singapore, and I remember traveling, I'm South African, based here in South Africa uh, currently. I remember traveling back from Singapore to um, to South Africa on on holidays and, and over what was so the lush Madagascar and always being so, so keen and, uh, and, and passionate to, to be a, a tourist and, and, and a, and a in the lush rainforest that exists and experiencing the lame, uh, lemurs, etc., for the first time. Anyway, as it as my career developed, I, I took a sabbatical and started doing conservation finance work for for, for CI here here in Africa, um, and got to go to Madagascar. And so we flew into Tana, Antananarivo, the the capital, and we had a ten hour drive down to one of the reserves that CI manages for um, for the government. Um, and honestly, for all ten hours. We drove down and passed brown rice paddies rather than lush primary tropical um, tropical forest, and then all ten hours back up again. So, that sort of seminal moment in my life um, was I going to return to high finance, which certainly is is is, re is 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 rewarding. But for me personally, the journey took a different path. 
um, I either either my path into green finance, um, conservation finance, was the most meaningful job in the world, or possibly the most futile, given the scale of challenge that we're facing. But I certainly thought, uh, well, let, let me go down trying. And, um, and I've spent the last six years of my life doing um, conservation finance, which is trying to deploy capital to achieve environmental impact. Thanks, Julie. Back to you. Thanks so much. Um, if we could actually really just think about Madagascar for a moment, most of us or many of us will know it. Let's not let's let's be honest here. The movie, right? The cartoon. The reality is Madagascar is experiencing a climate-induced famine. Actually, it's the first climate-induced famine labeled so officially by the United Nations. So it's very profound. And knowing what tourism can do and and what responsible impact investment can do is really really important you know and I, I think it's a great honor to work in an industry where we can create great times but also use that revenue in such a powerful way um, I will I will we'll be inviting your questions please send us questions we'll be tackling those later on so as you you have questions please we will come to those um, travel as a force for good it's a bit of a cliche, isn't it? We, I mean, you know, everyone uses this expression. What does it really, really mean? Joss, what does it mean? I think you're, you're trying to connect tourism to conservation outcomes. In my view, there's a very real and very direct uh, link between conservation outcomes and an effective well-run tourism. And there's this sort of spider's web of connectivity between, say, Jason's choice to go to Kitchatemba his revenue that comes in does lots of things. It covers uh, employment, whether it's in Bex's lodges or mine or other people's. Um, it flows shared value into the community economies that sit around the camp. Um, by literally traversing, if you went to one of Bex's places in Zimbabwe or Zambia, those vehicles are the land managers to a degree in terms of the habitats that you're preserving. They're the eyes on the ground. Through COVID, they were the only eyes on the ground. We were the only last remaining vigilantes of some of these biospheres we preserve and um and the wildlife that obviously exists on those in in those on the land or in the sea around islands that you're trying to preserve um are being protected because the tour tourists are coming to look at it and they, they turn into protectorates or reserves or places that ci might venture into try and you know frontier conservation areas like madagascar or gabon or what africa parks does in the congo um, or up in chad so some people question, is there a direct connectivity between tourism and uh, conservation outcomes? And is travel as a force for good? 100% it's a force for good. But it needs, to be, it needs to be done well, and it needs to be done with um, respectable operators. And uh, that, that's where this whole conversation comes in. How do you feel guilty about traveling? Can you tra how do you know who you're traveling with? Is it a force for good? Um, and I think we've got some great people on here who can provide some insight into that. Absolutely. And, and also, you know, when we talk about travel and we're talking about the finance, it's not just that. And you, you guys all, you all shared your stories of happy, you know, amazing travel memories. For me, that power of the storytelling and the experience, when, when I hear about, you know, people who've spent time with and beyond, and there's a great story, actually, about someone called Will Clothier. So, so he went to Pinda, age 11, originally. And he stayed in touch with the guide and it became his, his sort of mentor. And uh, Will went to Pinda, he about 14, age 14, he decided, right, I am going to, 
I'm going to study a wildlife filmmaking course in Bristol. That's what he said, 14, right? He took part in the Rhinos Without Borders initiative. And I hope, Joss, that you can tell us a bit more about that, because obviously during the pandemic, it was a really profound story. Um, you know, sad aspects, good aspects, um, if you can tell us more about that. But anyway, so Will did this trip. And fast forward. Uh, he he does um, he does a degree he does a he, he's he does a degree on um, I think it's it's you know filmmaking he decides I'm going to go back he gets onto this course that he's dreamt of since he was 14 inspired by his safari trip he uh, is going to go back to Pinder to capture the story of the pangolin very specifically but COVID puts paid to that so he pivots he makes a film in the UK called Pete the Pond. It actually won loads of accolades, including Best Direction at the LA Documentary Film Festival. And, okay, so let's fast forward. He's now in his 20s. He's now working at Off the Fence, the producers of Oscar award-winning, well, you might know, My Octopus Teacher. So you could say that was inspired by his trip. So travel is a force for good. You know, it's so powerful and the storytelling and the inspiration. Um, Bjorn, tell us more. Okay, tell us more about the money part. Great. Well, first of all, I must talk about that's exactly what I what I agree and sub subscribe to. Um, you must understand. Uh, sorry, did I cut out? But um, uh, you must you know, understand a lot of the. <laughs> so, sorry, our connection here in South Africa can be spotty. Um, the landscapes that where a lot of this biodiversity is, where this ecosystem is. Travel and and tourism goes to is is primary primary um, and rural economies. They they aren't in uh, alternative livelihoods are hard to come by, and the revenue that is generated by sustainable tourism, as as Josh, Josh uh, mentioned, is critical to to livelihoods to the communities that depend on um, on the tourism um, operators um, that, that operate there. So that, that's what we do as a conservation organization. How do we work with the communities who ultimately are the custodians and owners of that land to ensure a healthy ecosystem that can in turn deliver that um, wildlife experience that the tourism operators like and beyond depend on to provide you, the, the tourism guest, that, that wow moment that Jason spoke about. So it is all in, in interconnected and the, the revenue generated by sustainable tourism is ab absolutely critical in, in, in these landscapes. So I would just thank you so much. What I'd add to that, I'd honestly urge people to look at uh, Anne Beyond's impact report. You can go online and download that, have a look at that. And it, it talks about three pillars. Um, it talks about how your care of the land, your care of, of, of wildlife, and of course, your care of the people. Um, I'm actually choosing to tell everyone about that. And I often do. It really is exemplary. And just a note, and I think, you know, obviously everyone here who's joined us from whether it's New Jersey or Canada. Hi, everyone. Um, you know, biodiversity is one of the key topics in the climate conversation. And just to reinforce, you know, a million, a million plants and animal species face exti extinction. We, we've just seen that even the koala in Australia has just become endangered. So with the loss of each of these species really is significant. We're one step closer to, to destroying the, the web of life that, that sustains us all. So that's why this is such an important conversation around conservation. So thank you so, so much. Um, we know climate emergency is accelerating the loss of all these species. Um, why, why, why do we need 
to do all of this. Bex, you're 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 a big part of this. Oh, see, we had to have someone. It's usually me. You're on mute. So I was just testing the rest of the world how good they are at lip reading, but evidently not. Um, so, you know, I have a criteria um, when I go uh, at least and try to operate in an area. And the questions that we're faced with is, is how much of an impact can we really have in, a, in, a, in the local space? And I really talk about a local space um, because if you are operating in close proximity to a community, that becomes your people, your community, your source of pool um, in order to create the magic um, that we all create in our camps, including Joss, uh, Joss's camps. And we have this tagline, sharing and conserving Africa together. And, and the questions and the answers that we're looking for is how many people can we actually recruit from this specific area and transform them into people that are barely able to feed themselves, to people that are not only feeding themselves, but are supporting a whole community. The figures that we've heard uh, in the statistics is that for every tourism job, um, that supports anything from seven to 10 people. I mean, that is an impact. And if we're looking at setting up a place, <clears throat> we're probably looking at recruiting uh, a minimum of 50 to 60 people. So you can do your sums there in terms of what is the impact um, yeah. in that community. Bex, can I actually, because you've told me before about a project in Zambia and specifically about how you've really got involved because you don't want to be going in there and, and, and just, we don't want to just be, it, it's giving money in a way that's really positive, but really empowering, but also offers dignity. Um, can you tell us more about the, the Zambia project? You are wowing your statistics. We, um, we set up um, uh, Thorntree River Lodge in Zambia, <clears throat> which is really an iconic property right on the edge of Victoria Falls along the Zambezi River. And um, we did a community needs assessment to try and find out who are the players there, what's everybody doing. And one of the things that we like to do is not um, take the path of least resistance, but have a look um, further uh, uh, inland at what is the community that gets the least attention. Uh, within this uh, this area, and we've got different models wherever we operate, but that was sort of our take: is that Livingston is a semi-urban, quite a well-developed area, and in a sense, quite touristy, the main urban part. And what we want to do is really look at the rural communities because we believe it's in these areas where we need to not only conserve what's there, but start to regenerate some of these areas. And if you look at a country like Zambia, um, if you drive, let's say, from Livingston to Lusaka. You'll drive across vast tracts of lands that have been cleared for agriculture, again, speaking to the human pressure. Um, but you'll also find, uh, sadly, huge big bags of charcoal of these huge big indigenous trees that have been burnt, fields cleared uh, to sell as a source of fuel. And so we looked at all of this and said, well, we need to look probably for the hardest village or community for any tourist to get to. Slightly inconvenient because we can't just take our guests over there uh, very quickly. In fact, it's going to be a 45 to one hour journey in some of our locations, it's a two-year journey, uh, two-hour two journeys. So having looked at this, um, Mawunga community um, has about 200 kids. And we had an assessment to this and noticed that the school attendance levels were, were terrible, were less than 5%. But you had dribbles of school kids coming in, 200 kids. They had barely um, uh, any health uh, facilities. Uh, the women and the mothers of these communities would either die at childbirth or lose their children because of very poor health facilities. Um, they hardly had run, running water. And we took a look at all of this and said, well, the first thing we need to do before anything else is, is sort out the health facilities. So we built a clinic 
um, and have staffed it with two nurses. That now um, has transformed the lives of, of particularly the women and children in that particular community. But we've also interrogated what stops these children from attending to school. So we've provided, and not something that typically we would do, but we realized if a child is going to walk anything from five to 10 kilometers on an empty stomach, A, they're not going to concentrate when they get there. And, and, uh, and secondly, they're just not gonna be interested. So we provided one meal a day. And today we have an increasing pass rate. Um, we have running water, something that is a basic human uh, uh, right, which is access to the internet. They're now able to do that. They're now able to have that. And so there are all of these things that very slowly we're transforming a very impoverished community that has cleared. I mean, you drive there and there are, are, are piles and piles of wood simmering under the coals to create charcoal. And some of the conversations that we're having is, is, is how can we get our guests involved um, when they're burning all of this carbon to get to us to actually part of how can we give these communities and empower having them uh, uh, get trees and start planting trees to try and regenerate some of that woodland and some of those areas that have been destroyed. But not just expect them to do this for free, but actually pay them for those services and pay, pay them for being able to regenerate the environment that we all exist, that we all depend on. So it's these transformations of, of land, of wildlife and the people that, that we make those assessments as to whether we should go into an area or not. And that's why we do tourism. And in fact, I often joke about this and say, the tourism is secondary to the purpose that we have, which is sharing and conserving to Africa. And tourism happens to be the perfect vehicle that can allow us to do that and invite people from all walks of life to, to be custodians of, of what I call the vital organs of the planet. So, I mean, that's a wonderful way of really showing how, you know, there's so much there, the behavioral change, also the sort of education about why that needs to be done. I, presumably that's, that's really happening with the guests, with the local community. You use the word custodians. Um, I, think, I think that's a, it's such an important word. Um, I know that, that Jason, when you went on your trip, um, you, this is exactly the kind of sort of activity or behavior you were experiencing. So how did it affect how you maybe ran your own businesses or how you ran business when you went back? Because obviously, typically in America, I know that people often consider shareholders. But now, you know, what we're hearing are stories of everybody being a stakeholder and everyone caring about all of them. For sure, Julia. I mean, it can't help but change you. Uh, and, you know, if, I, if, if there was one sort of uh, thing I wish I could do is uh, with, with regards to this topic is I wish everyone in America could literally go and spend a couple of weeks in Kenya or Botswana or uh, Namibia or, or anywhere uh, in Africa, because it, it, I think it changes your perspective for the better while not changing the environment um, for the worse. Um, uh, you know, in all the ways that Joss and, and, and Bex and Bjorn were talking about, um, yes, there's economics that are brought to the local communities because of travelers and their spend and investment. But I actually think, you know, what the travelers take is actually probably more impactful in the long term, which is a fundamental change in perspective. And so you asked about how that impacted me and how that impacts how I run businesses. Um, I think it's fair to say that um, I define myself first and foremost as a citizen of the world. And so, you know, this is this will get a little bit back to movies and television series, as you brought up earlier uh, in the talk that, you um, you know, at Warner Media, one of the services that uh, we focus greatly on uh, was a service called HBO Max. And I'd say that, you know, probably a couple of decades ago, it would be very normal to take a service like that 
to America, uh, to Western Europe, and maybe to Australia, New Zealand. But Africa wouldn't you know, necessarily be on the radar. And yet one of the things that was very important to me is that we had a game plan for bringing HBO Max to Europe, to the continent, um, in addition to um, other places around the world. And uh, that's just like one small example where once you've experienced it, once you've accessed it, you can't help but um, have your aperture open uh, to the way the world uh, exists. And, and you want to do all you can to serve them, uh, including folks in Africa and all over the world. So um, that's just one small example of how you know, my exposure uh, to the great people in Africa you know, had changed how I thought about business uh, you know, you know, back here in California. Thanks. I'm going to ask you another question, actually, lead into a question for everyone to think about, because obviously when we talk about these, well, sustainable luxury, we'll use that term, these trips, can you have both? And do people still worry? And this may spark some questions from the audience. But, you know, if you're someone who, who saved up, you want to go spending lots on this amazing trip of a lifetime. Um, are you a bit concerned that sometimes are people concerned that all this good might come at a cost to their comfort? I mean, dare we say that? How did you feel, Jason? Do you feel that, you know, can you be having this very responsible, ethical, sustainable, good trip? Is that anything you have to sacrifice? Yeah, no, I th it's a great, it's the question. Uh, and I think where it starts is, you know, who you choose uh, to partner with uh, as a traveler. And I, I've, I've uh, you know, kind of known Joss uh, Kent for many, many years. And so one of the things I always got a kick out of is when his eyes would lighten up when he talked about the mission of and beyond, which was so much more than just a hospitality uh, mission. Uh, it really was all the other things that we've talked about on this, this uh, webcast, um, which is literally using travel as a means to do something else. Um, because at the end of the day, as Joss has reminded me many times, um, you can't just rely on philanthropy. You can't just rely on grants. Um, it turns out that capitalism, sustainable capitalism, is an incredible um, means to which you can actually change things uh, for the better and for the long term. So to your question about the luxury of it all and this and the other, I think it really comes down to people like uh, Bex and Joss who, who think very carefully about how to deliver it that in a way that is sustainable uh, and 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 you know, ultimately leads to positive impact on the environment um, because of the resources that are brought to bear that can change things like water safety and security and education and I've seen it with my own eyes uh, you know throughout Kenya and Tanzania where that direct impact of capitalism because of the luxury you know level of of accommodations absolutely changes communities for the better. So I'm not the expert on that. I'll defer to the rest of the folks on this call. Um, but I, I think it really comes down to who you choose to partner with. And if you choose ethical and honorable people, uh, I think it's a, it, it's a strategy that absolutely is, is, is a robust one that can last for the long term. And I think, thank you. And I think we just need to really redefine the word luxury. For me, luxury shouldn't be about excess consumption and, and terrible things. It should be about feeling good. And, and for me, rare, I mean, if you look at the origin of the word luxury, it's, it's these rare experiences that are enriching in, in themselves. So yeah, Joss, what do you think? You know, is there a cost to uh, come? Yeah, absolutely not. You do not need to trade in luxury or whatever your definition of comfort or luxury is for for a high impact um, experience. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. I mean, I've, I've just come back from New York. I had a chance to stay in a world famous hotel, 
which I don't often do. Um, it was Ritz-Carlton in New York, right in Central Park. Uh, it struck me after two days of being there. I was like, okay, I'm going to put up one of our lodges, or you could put up any of Bex's either. So, and beyond Sausage Desert Lodge. Very delicate ecosystem. One footprint will last 400 years if you step off the track in the desert, in the Lambert Desert. That is $1,500 a night with Ambient. The Ritz-Carlton, by the time you've played all the F&B and everything, is actually $3,000 a night, which I wasn't playing, thank goodness. Um, but it was full, absolutely full. When I look at those experiences, you'd say, okay, well, Ritz-Carlton is luxury defined, as, as you put it in this, comfort, luxury, et cetera. And can I just ask, I mean, do you think different ages, uh, different generations respond? No. Do they have different expectations? No. Yeah. Let me just finish the, the, the comparison. So, so I just sat there going, okay, well, what's the difference here between answer with this question that you've put? Ambient Sosflade has a large 70 to 75% renewable energy, solar. Bex is super strong on his renewable energy. Most of his camps are on solar. I know that. And, and gray water reticulation, 90% gray water reticulation in the desert because we want to reuse everything. We got zero plastic. I mean, zero plastic in the lodge, and we're probably about 38% up the supply chain. Yeah, of getting plastic out of the supply chain before it even hits the lodge. Um, and you can, you can go on. We've got about 76, 80% local employment. We've got about 73% local supplier uh, purchasing. That's within 50 kilometers of the lodge, a bit extended in Namibia because a lot comes from uh, Vintook. I then looked at the Ritz-Carlton, no renewable energy, plastic everywhere, um, no biosphere influence. They're not actually preserving anything unless they think they're preserving something in Central Park. Um, no water preservation. You could just turn the taps on and run the whole of New York dry for the three days I was there. Uh, in fact, they probably encourage you to do it. So, so I guess is, is I look at it through the lens of defining what that is. And if you, I 100% would put up one of African bush camps or an Ambient Lodge against what the traditional definition of luxury or comfort is. And so you tell me, go and experience pound for pound. And have you given it anything up by making a choice between staying, I don't, not, don't mean to beat up the risk carbon, but uh, between this operator and that operator in your consumer choice at any age bracket, whether you're a millennial, Gen Z, boomer, um, et cetera. And I think increasingly consumers are making those choices. They are looking for the operator where if they're going to spend that kind of money, um, that they are choosing the right people to do it with. So I, I think it's there's a responsibility here. And I don't see it strongly in, in a lot of other places. I think Africa is one of its greatest exports is its capability in this area. And it's, it's, it's under, it's undersold. So um, maybe I can just add to what I, I think Joss really put that um, quite well there. I mean, we've got two people here that we can talk about in terms of making their choices. Um, in Jason's case, he makes his choices. Where do I travel? He asks the right questions. And more and more we're finding our audience is asking the right questions. Where am I going to spend my money and where is it going? You know, there's this whole thing of travel shaming or carbon shaming. And I think people want to know that wherever they go, their money is going to be put or employed into good use. And, and we're not saying that these are the only people we want to have in our camps, but we're saying as people in our industry, we're doing our utmost to make sure that we are educating people to be aware that these are the choices that they can make and they can all make a contributing difference by making those right choices. And, and um, on the other hand, when it comes to, to, uh, to Jason, you know, um, in terms of who does he fund? Where does his capital go to? He's, he's, he's got the model of uh, the green capital. 
And he is going to help Safari operators like ourselves develop infrastructure and support communities because of the good that we're doing. So it's a whole full circle of having these partnerships that strategically will all help us achieve a better planet. And as you say, in terms of looking at where the money's going and ownership, I think a lot of people are waking up. And that's why, you know, when I say about generationally, I think that the younger, the younger travelers, so tomorrow's you know, high-end luxury traveler, is much more aware. So you men mentioned the Ritz-Carlton. I don't know how many people in the audience, do you know who owns the Ritz-Carlton? Do you know it's owned by Marriott, really? So it's just people are waking up to, to exactly as you say, um, who owns it, why do they run this business, where's the money going? Um, yeah, are there any other comments you want to make on, on how people respond? I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the Ritz-Carlton and you talked about water in New York. People are often in... Um, well, in, in, in the Americas or certainly in UK, where it's raining now, um, we don't think about water, but we realize, you know, Africa, m many of the African countries already know this is one of the biggest crises. So you've woken up to it. Um, and it's, I, th I think we want hotel groups that reflect our values. So I don't know if that's another consideration, Joss, you know, are you staying in a hotel that reflects your values? Totally. And I, and I think increasingly you, you'll just see that with the demographic shift uh, we're already seeing it in Avion in terms of uh, those kind of Gen Z millennial, you know, they're, they're increasing and they're very demanding when it comes to these questions. And they're not going to, you're not going to fob them off with an impact review because they'll check that. And they can check that on TripAdvisor. They can check it on any of the multiple platforms. So there's no point trying to, you know, we, we can go into a whole conversation about greenwashing and everything. You, if, if you're going to put your label up and say you're, you're, do, you're, you're doing this um, sustainably and with, with impact, you, you better mean it. You're going to get caught out. Totally. I mean, we're hearing the word sustainability all the time. I think we're almost at risk of being like, oh, sustainability. What does it even mean? I just hear this word so often. I mean, what, sh what should it mean? What should the word sustainability mean, do you think? Anyone? Who's going to answer that? Who feels eager? I'll, I'll throw it out there, which is I just think sustainability means treading lightly uh, and, and leaving this world in a better position uh, than when you found it. And I, I think Bex and Joss and, and, and many, many others are, are doing just that, um, you know, which is, you know, do you have a model that uh, um, is robust and can survive boom times and bust times? And this gets back to the comment about, and this is not about, you know, depending on, you know, the benevolence and grants and, and, and philanthropy. That's very, very important and it's helpful. But, but having something that's sustainable means that, you know, Bex and Joss are in control of their own destinies. Uh, and, 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 and I think that's, uh, that's to me what sustainable is uh, in, when you ask that question, Julia. Yeah, and I, for me, it's simply, you know, more doing more positive, more good than negative, obviously. Beyond conservation, that's a key one, isn't it? Being a nature positive business. And uh, Joss, I mean... Yeah, if we've lost Beyond, is... is one of the things we're finding is is it's, we're kind of we're nearly beyond sustainability. Certainly in the in the way we're we're kind of thinking, the absolute shared value and true shared value of outcomes is critical. Um, we can we can get romantic and uh, about community visits. To be to be blunt, you know, going into a, a clinic or to a school. If if these places to endure, there has to be equal shared value between local communities, governments. Uh, and the value attributable to, to, to uh, private operators and indeed the experience that you give to guests. There's shared value in all those things. Now that care of land, wildlife and people is a, is a template through which we try to do that. But going forward, you're gonna see communities not just 
wanting clinics built or uh, schools built. They want to become equity owners in the land. They want to become equity owners in the lodges. They want to they, they see the training schemes become embedded into their communities. This is a very different concept, and it'll strain the relationship between operators and governments and communities. But, but that is where we're headed. And so true sustainability is conservation capitalism, as, as Jason said. You, you've got to kill what you eat, you, to use the safari terminology, or eat what you kill, um, to, to be truly sustainable um, in terms of revenues paying for, for conservation. And then the shared value uh, situation between governments, communities, and operators is going to be at the epicenter of what sustainability actually means in the next few decades. And so can I, since you've referenced, you know, the safari phrase that's beloved, why is it we so often have, well, these epiphanies, these moments, these life-changing aha moments whilst on safari, on trips like yours? Why is that? Shall I give you one minute and then I'll hand over? Because, yeah, please. Because going back to where I started, uh, just, just look at the history of, of man, the origins of man. We are all, our DNA is all traced back to the Afar depression in Ethiopia. 3.2 million years ago, if you look at Lucy, which was the hominid discovered by Don Johansson, subsequent DNA testing across the whole world takes all humanity back to East Africa and into that valley. Whether we like it or not, when we go on safari, I believe that that's a visceral uh, reaction to going back to, to survival of a species to, to, to where we once came from. We might not know it when we're sitting in a vehicle and we're all comfort and you've got a cappuccino on the front, but somewhere in there, you know something can eat you. You know that it's a very, and, and then the people side of it is, is super important. When you come in, you, you go for wildlife, but you end up loving the people. So I think it's a combination of those two things. Juliet, I would actually like to just build on some of those comments there. My internet glitching gave Joss the mic, thankfully. Thank you so much, he, <laughs> he, he articulated it better than I could. But, you know, the sustainability, there, there is no sustainability of a lodge or of a reserve if you don't look more broadly at that, at the, the community on the buffer zone, at the ecosystem that's that's acting as the watershed that's feeding the rivers. So, you know, we have to move from a sort of a narrow species or certain place-based sustainability lens to a much more inclusive model. But, you know, the conservation cap uh, capitalism term might jar with some, but actually that brings about financial sustainability. And, and you know, that we have to be pragmatic conservationists, um, but also inclusive. For me, sustainability is around inclusion because it's a much bigger play than a particular landscape. The Masai Mara let's, let, and Kichwa Temba, as, 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 as an example, and the 20 conservancies that surround the Mara. If you don't um, conserve the Mao forest, which is the water catchment, um, there is no Mara in, in, in 20 years. So it's a, it's a more, much broader and more complex um, uh, target, but it's the one that we need to, we need to achieve. Thank you, Bjorn. Oh, I was meant to, uh, well, I'm planning a trip to go to Kenya and I, I was telling a friend of mine, um, Who's from that? And he said, "Yeah, you should." He said it casually. He said, "Yeah, you should because um, your daughter, she just won't get to see those animals otherwise." And he said, "It's changing." You know, I think this is what we have to realize. You know, the climate emergency isn't in the distance; it's right here. Things are changing, and it is vital to support this work. I really can't emphasize that enough. It really landed with me when when they said that. So we're going to open to a few few questions in a moment, but I'd like to ask you a question that I really would love to hear your thoughts. 
What do you think are the biggest challenges facing humanity right now? I know it's a big question to end on, but I'd really love to hear from your perspective what you think the biggest challenges are and any ways that you're helping and, and how we are helping as travelers, um, please. So, uh, you know, uh, Bex, please tell us. So my simple um, answer to that question, Juliet, is, is the nature of, of human beings um, over consumptuous behavior. And, you know, this is something that we all talked about in the height of the pain of COVID, where we were very hopeful that, you know, emerging out of COVID, people will actually behave differently. Uh, I'm still hopeful that um, that is where we're headed as, a, as humanity. Um, but, you know, we're having very frank conversations that we've, we've never had before about why it's important for us not to have certain things in caps. When guests ask, um, you know, why don't you have this wrapped around plastic for hygienic purposes or why aren't you serving this this way? Um, for us, you know, we really are able to push back confidently and say, look, we need you to be part of the journey and this is why we're doing it. So I think that over-consumptive um, uh, behavior of human beings, I think, is the biggest threat um, to not just Africa but to the world. And, and particularly if you project what the scientists, and I hope some way um, that they're wrong, but when you see the projections of uh, human population growth and you talk about consumption, particularly in Africa, we stand to the brunt, I think, of the biggest risk of losing our, our, our uh, wilderness areas. Yeah, it's powerful. I mean, I know, Joss... Um... I know that population growth is, is something that really concerns you. Um, explain, you know, the, the, the causes and symptoms and, and help us understand that better. Well, to, to, to a, a chart with, with two arrows going in the wrong direction, we're talking about Africa. The African population will double. I think it's by 2050. How many countries in Africa? For those of us, obviously, it's a huge continent. There are, is it 55 countries? Yeah, Sorry. 55, yeah. 56. So it's big. But so you, you've, got, you've got a doubling of the population in Africa. The actual amount of food production area for food production is going to go down 28 to 35%. So just when you need more food, you're not getting it because you haven't got space to grow. You've got populations going up. Well, where do you think those where's the pressure point? The pressure point is on the biospheres that Bex and I work in that we're trying to preserve, that, that um, the Beyond is, is desperately, especially the frontier conservations that aren't benefiting from tourism today. The economic argument for there is, well, if you can't make it work, you tourism people, we're going to farm it. Corn is more valuable than, than Impala. Sorry, we're doing it. Um, so for me, the, the, the confluence team, population growth, uh, reduction of agricultural areas and, and the, the, the pressure that's put on, on very delicate biospheres, especially in those areas that d either don't have uh, consumptive tourism sitting on them, uh, or indeed in some areas are actually protected by uh, buffer zone hunting, which is another contentious conversation. But there is a place for that in this ecosystem in certain areas um, when you're just trying to preserve uh, these uh, very delicate ecosystems. So Bjorn, what would your comment be? Um, so I would I would certainly reflect um, Bex and Joss's view. I think the at the at the macro level, um, this consumption out of hand consumption and an extreme population growth those those are very tightly correlated. Um, are, are, sort of our, our major, uh, probably our our, our, sort of our, our, our 
primary global challenge, but certainly at an environmental and a conservation level. Um, and that really plays itself out into climate. So the climate emergency um, is really a result of, of, of consumption and, and, and unsustainable consumption and unsustainable population growth. So, um, so climate, but that's actually just an outcome of, of, of the former two. So it's, it's, a, it's a bleak picture, but not insurmountable. <laughs> Well, look, so thank you so much. We've only got 10 minutes left. We've got a few questions here. I'm just going to ask you, Jason, for your final thought on that, and then we're going to move to questions. Thank you so much. Jason, biggest challenge? Sure. I, I think, you know, there's no shortage of challenges that we face on this planet, for sure. And obviously, we've talked a lot about the, you know, uh, natural resources and uh, conservation and, 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 and all of those things, which um, I, I think in many ways are critical. Um, but they're also in some ways symptoms in terms of the way I think about it, which is, I think in many ways, the root cause, which is our ultimately our biggest challenge is one of empathy, um, which is that I feel like that is probably the most precious resource and limited resource we have right now. And we need a lot more of it. Um, and to, to, to maybe kind of try and bring this full circle is that I, I do believe that travel and specifically um, safari, uh, in my experiences for sure, has this magical ability to grow empathy in humans. Um, and, and it's amazing, uh, you know, when, when you're in a situation where people come at a situation, uh, come at a challenge with empathy, um, the whole game changes. Uh, and, and so I think our greatest challenge uh, as a society, as a species, is that of empathy, uh, specifically to manufacture more of it amongst all of us. Thank you. It's a really powerful one. Empathy also, you know, along that compassion. Absolutely. I think it's it's absolutely critical. Um, we have a few more minutes and we have some questions, so I'm going to race through those. Um, one question we've got here is uh, about conservation. For example, it's important. How? What role does voluntarism play? Is that good? What do we think on voluntarism? I'm going to ask you, Bex. Just quickly, we're running out of time now. Thank you. So volunteerism as African bush camps is not something that we are big advocates of, um, but there are organizations that I believe really do it well. Um, for us, we feel um, quite often there are solutions in Africa that we need to be empowering our people in our boundaries to be able to affect themselves. We have enough experts on the ground to be able to affect some of the things that we really need to do. And we quite frankly find sometimes it, it means that we have to dedicate management tools and resources that we're already short of to be able to manage people doing volunteerism and that energy, um, uh, I think, could go to other places. So, so in general, as African Bush Camp, it's not an area that we venture into. It's not something that we want to build as a business model. Uh, but that's not to say that there are other entities throughout Africa or at least throughout the world that do a very good job at it. Anyone have another word on, on volunteerism at all? Just, just quick. a quick one from me. Broadly, yeah. I agree with Bex. Just, just yeah. uh, tweaking that s uh, somewhat is uh, it depends on the skill set of the volunteer. You know, uh, uh, arriving at a location with a with an undeveloped skill set, as Bex said, that takes a lot of handholding and development from the people you're trying to support. But actually, understanding what valuable skill set you have sitting in the developed market, whether that be a science skill set, access to capital, um, infrastructure, and deploying that. Now, that's hugely valuable. Um, so it's, it's, it's being quite focused on and understanding your value add rather than arriving and expecting to, to immediately contribute because there's a long la lead time, lag time before the value gets, gets added. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. We've just got a couple more questions. This is a really big one. I don't know who wants to tackle this, but um, what does the future of Africa look like, according to the panelists, and how does it relate to their respective industries? It's a big question. Who wants to, to try that, Joss? Lord. Future of Africa. <laughs> Listen, uh, having, having said what are the problems of population, I don't think we'd be doing what we we're doing if we weren't passionate about it and we didn't think we could make a difference. Um, I think it would be on that if you asked any of our 2,000 employees what, what they get up for in the morning, it's it's certainly not working for me, right? Uh, it is, they're, they're driven by that. They think they can make a difference. No, I think and, and so I think I think actually, as I said, Africa, the, the Africa's one of the greatest exports is its conservation models, of which the three other individuals or two other individuals here are are in. Um, well, the world should be learning from Africa. We, it's at the epicenter of those things. So I think it, it's not as gloomy as everyone thinks. It's got challenges, though. Um, but we will keep running at it. And you're being too humble because we do know that, you know, people do want to work for a business that is spearheaded and led by somebody who has is purpose driven themselves. So it's really, really important to acknowledge that also. Bex, do you have a comment on that? Future of Africa? That so I think quite often um, there's a lot of empathy in the world because people see the challenges that Africa has, that the world has, and people just put up their hands because they're just so overwhelmed with the amount of challenges and just the enormity of it. Um, but I always go back down to basics and say, actually, every individual can make a very big difference in the day-to-day -day life choices that they make, whether it's simple recycling in your home, choosing not to use plastic, influencing your local grocery store not to dish out plastic bags, you know, it, that's where it starts. And it's these small contributions that in total worldwide will contribute to making a remarkable difference. And we wake up every day passionate and doing what we do because actually we do believe that we can make a difference. And we know that we don't have to be, it doesn't have to be a, a doom and gloom end of, this, end of the journey. So I would say there is big hope um, and certainly we're big advocates of it. And that's why we do what we do. Great. Thank you so much. Well, I've got a couple more questions here. I'm going to read them both out and I'm really keen to hear the answers myself. Um, one is, well, how do you encourage travelers to want to travel with a purpose instead of traveling just for them, themselves? And I think we've touched upon that sort of tension between individualism and being more more communi communitarian or, or being more aware of, of the wider we story. So how do you encourage travelers? And then the other one is, with the move to more sustainable tourism and tour operators having to be more conscious of their impact, because that's what travelers are looking for, is business going to be more difficult for traditional or old school operators as opposed to the new entries to the market? So yeah, who would like to answer either of those? I'm gonna say, Joss, come on. How do we encourage travelers to want to travel with purpose? How do we do it? Storytelling is how, how I think we should do it. If I can answer the other one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, look, Jason, you're a traveler. You're yeah, a traveler. One, could, one, could that, one could say that Anne Beyond was an old school operator, um, but I think you can t teach an old dog new tricks, right? And and I'd say we've made a very conscious effort to try and get ahead of that and not be a victim of, of being an old operator. I do think old operators who don't listen to what we're saying on this call yeah, are dinosaurs. And you will get caught out. The governments, in terms of you go to Botswana and try and get a lease in Botswana as a new operator. I mean, those concession requirements are very, very strict. Um, we see it in Rwanda. We see it in, in other where, where African countries and African governments are taking this very seriously. 
they, they want you to do the job properly. So a new entrant is going to have very high bars to, to come into um, uh, to, to, to get into the, into the industry. So yes, I think old operators who aren't, who aren't awake or listening uh, are dinosaurs. Those, but they, are, they can change and they should change and they will change because they're going to be forced to change. So wake up. Wake up. Yeah. yeah. And, so and Julia, to, to your comment about how to get more people focused on this, you already answered the question. It's storytelling. At least my, my perspective is that, and this is where social media is probably the biggest friend of, uh, you know, of this whole topic, um, because there's nothing better than authentic storytelling of people that have been there and or people that operate these amazing experiences to truly and deeply share them uh, in compelling ways through video, through imagery, uh, uh, through music. Um, and so I think there just needs to be an, a, a lean into the storytelling of it all. That's what moves people. I mean, out of Africa, the movie way back when caused a huge uh, increase in tourism to Africa. And so we've seen it happen in traditional linear ways. Now with social media, I'd argue the opportunity is, is so much bigger. The last, last comment from me that Juliet is they're not mutually exclusive. You know, that traveler who's traveling for themselves, continue for, to travel for yourselves. Go to the destinations that you're passionate and interested in. Just do your research in the operators that you select, in, in, in where your revenue is going. Expose yourself. The, the aperture comment that Jason mentioned, open that aperture and, and learn from, the, from the, those communities, from, from those ecosystems. Then you're traveling with purpose. So they're one and the same for me. Thank you so much. What I was going to add there really is, is just to say, you know, you've got very evident, um, uh, very evident pictures in both Bjorn and Jason. Jason chooses places to go to um, because of the good that they do on the ground. Uh, Bjorn, on the other hand, is a business that will fund organizations that are actually doing good on the ground. So, you know, I think there's a collective responsibility in the tourism industry um, and, and also with the people that travel to us, where it's our responsibility really to be able to tell the stories so that people make the right choices. And it's about bringing everybody um, uh, to the journey. And we have this concept um, that we've been talking about throughout COVID that you need to travel slow, travel deep. And, and that really comes from a yearning that there is so much education that we need to put out there uh, to the rest of the world to understand the challenges and to also understand the potential victories that are ahead of us. So I'm going to say, first of all, as well, thank you to everyone who came today. That's a big thing. That's a big help. First of all, that's a wonderful thing to do. To listen to this conversation, have more dialogues, look up from your phones when you travel, put the devices away, talk to each other. Really, as just as Jason said, cultivate that empathy and, and really learn from each other. Um, I'm, I'm going to quote Greta Thunberg, who, who I heard speak in London this week. Whatever your thoughts on the teenage climate activists, she also said, well, she said, one of the most important things we can do is educate ourselves about the climate crisis. That's, that's important. And for me, how do we learn about that? We connect with nature. We, we understand its role firsthand. And I, will, I, I would urge everyone to take a trip and really experience that. Thank you so much. There are a few other questions. I'm sure that we can try and answer those offline um, as well. So we can hang back and, and share some thoughts online. Thank you to everyone, seriously, for joining us today and to the panel who uh, I learned so much from. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our special panel. 
If you'd like to explore more conservation topics and pose your own questions to our experts, follow End Beyond Travel on Facebook or Instagram and look out for details of our next live discussion topic coming soon.